we had a roof overhead and food to eat, and there wasn't any drama at home. Um, I actually did pretty well in school, but my default emotion was just sadness. Hai pendengar yang setia, kalian sedang mendengarkan episode dari The Value of Wrinkles. Whatever age you're at or consider yourself to be, maybe that's young, youngish, midlife, older, or maybe you just called yourself old, you are welcome here. Selamat mendengarkan. Enjoy! This series of podcasts is sponsored by AARP. AARP is an organization that is dedicated to empowering people as they age. You have probably heard of AARP before, but what you probably didn't know is that they have a ton of resources, guides, and articles to help you age and to help you care for your older loved ones as they age. Be sure to check out my show notes at valueofwrinkles.com slash listen. Click on episode 50, 51, 52, or 53 to get resources that AARP has that were specifically made to help Asian American and Asian American families like yours. Welcome back to the podcast today. I want to thank Felicia, who, if you know who Felicia is, she was on episode 51, where we talked about caring for Asian elders with food. So you want to go back to listen to that episode. But Felicia was speaking Indonesian in the beginning, and I just thought it brought some great flavor to today's episode and to this series. Today's episode is a little different, and it's also special because my husband, Kevin, he joined me as we interviewed DJ Chuang. We did it together. While today's episode is not directly talking about caregiving, it talks about you and I as people. And as an Asian American, I feel like if we're going to care well for our elders, then it's really important to care for yourself and know how to care for yourself. And when it comes to caring for ourselves, I actually think that stereotypically, I don't think we're that good at caring for ourselves because we're we're good at caring for others. We're good at thinking of others. We're good at sacrificing for our families and doing things for the best, for the good of others, which is a good thing. But in the midst of that, sometimes we forget about ourselves. DJ Chuang, he works as a digital strategy consultant and he's the director of Christian Asian Mental Health And in his work, he tries to advance compassion and care in Asian American churches for everyone. He co-hosts the Erasing Shame podcast, which I'll put that in the show notes. And he graduated from Virginia Tech. He blogs at djchuang.com, and he is from California. Today, he's here. He shares his personal story dealing with bipolar disorder. And any person with a mental health issue, a lot of times, especially as an Asian American, we keep those things to ourselves. But the fact that we can be vulnerable and that DJ is vulnerable in this episode, I think what it's going to do is it's going to encourage you to focus on your own mental health, to care for yourself, to seek help, to get counsel, to even look into meds if that's something that maybe you have been advised to do. Um, I'm not saying that you have to do that, but I think as an Asian American, it's something that we are hesitant to do. We're hesitant to focus on our mental health. 
if we can learn to process the things that we've gone through, if we can learn to work through the different physical, mental, different issues that we have, it's going to make us a better person. It's going to make us a better caregiver. So tune in and I hope you truly enjoy this episode. It is a longer, little longer than usual, but let's jump in. And I grew up in a traditional Chinese-American family, immigrated to the U.S. when I was eight, and grew up in the metro Washington, D.C. area, a couple years in Bethesda, Maryland, mostly in Winchester, Virginia. And I didn't have a lot of exposure to being Chinese-American other than being in my family. But one thing I knew was I uh, grew up just being a sad kid. We had a roof over our head and food to eat, and there wasn't any drama at home. Um, I actually did pretty well in school, but my default emotion was just sadness. Um, even though we were well provided for, we, and I didn't know what to do with that other than occasionally I would get scolded for not having a better attitude or something. But um, later on, uh, as I went through college and seminary and worked as a pastor for five years, um, I came to a point at the age of 35 where through a stressful situation, I was no longer able to manage my life. I couldn't function and I really needed help. And so I finally went to see a therapist and I was diagnosed bipolar. So I think looking back, I uh, think I've always lived with some sense of mental health challenge, but never attended to it because of the shame and stigma of being an Asian American male and didn't know how to talk about my feelings. And over the past, well, now it's 23 years since I was diagnosed, I've been able to manage my mental health symptoms, uh, living with bipolar, and now have occasions to share about the story of grace and healing and found that to be helpful to others. So uh, one of the things that I do now is anytime I'm invited to share, I'm happy to share. So thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, thank you. I mean, it, it's hard to be open about these types of things. Mm -hmm. one, of the, one of the things that uh, I, when I was hearing you speak in one of your, I guess your seminar on the, on YouTube was you said that you're, you had bipolar, but it looked different than the typical, I guess, the like super excited and then really depressed. Yours sound like just like sadness. So is that probably accurate or what, what, what more was it? Like you said, sadness. So did you not have any other emotions? It was just kind of like just even keeled all the time slash sadness. What could you describe what that kind of looked like more? As yes. Yeah. When I was first diagnosed bipolar, the only other person and I didn't know much about mental illnesses and things because if it didn't affect your life, we don't pay much attention to it. But the other person that was diagnosed bipolar, actually by the same doctor that diagnosed me, he had such drastic mood swings. So it was very obvious when he was in a high elated mood swing where he was very energetic, very sociable, had lots of uh, energy and ideas and very creative. And then when he was down, 
and depressed. He was so sad. He could barely get out of bed and kept losing his job and eventually lost his uh, marriage and family um, in terms of divorce. Um, whereas for me, my symptoms were milder. I still had my mood swings. So for a large span of my past 20 years, I had two weeks when my mood swing would be elevated. So my creative energy would be higher. I would be more productive. I would need less sleep. And then I would have four weeks and I was had a lower mood swing. Mm -hmm. So I was feeling more sad, more sluggish, more difficult thinking and planning. And with medication, it evened out. So it wasn't as high or as low, but I could still tell my emotional moods were different. And then during the past six years, it's been even more evened out. So I don't have predictable mood swings as much as I used to when I first um, was diagnosed and was adjusting to that lifestyle. And um, so that's what bipolar disorder looks like for me from week to week. Uh, occasionally I have moments when I need less sleep and I'm really energetic and really sociable and really creative. And then most of the time, just more even keeled, sometimes sluggish, sometimes depressed. And I appreciate like how you speak and you're trying to uh, take some of the myths away as far as like mental health, and people being ashamed and things like that. And I guess just to throw the word out there is what some people think when they hear bipolar, they may think crazy, right? That's, that's one that people think, whoa, those persons are crazy. Um, but for yours, and I think it's not crazy, even if it's not like yours, yours is like you said, more mild symptoms, but yours seems more of like you had more energy, it sounds like, and then, or you just like yes. had very little energy, just low. So people wouldn't really notice like, whoa, that person's really bipolar. He's just, oh, he just seems kind of down and low, doesn't have energy for whatever reason. And then, oh, he's very creative, has lots of energy. <laughs> I think you said also said, so that's probably accurate as you're nodding, that that's probably characterized yes. like yours. But you said um, something really, you know, there's always that almost like that dilemma that happened with, or do you feel comfortable sharing what that was that, that kind of stood out that you're like, it, whoa, something's going on here. Let's check it out. Oh, I'm free to talk about myself. Yeah, what, I'm, what, what was I'm that? not what as free to talk about my relatives and, and things oh, like oh, that. That's fine. So yeah, like, in what terms was of, it? yeah, for you, what happened? Or what triggered yeah, so on February 1st? Help? Is that what yeah. you're saying? What triggered you to get help mm -hmm. to go to? Oh, when I was first diagnosed, I, I was just so uh, depressed and so unmotivated and confused and even had suicidal ideation. Mm. And so I knew that was when I really needed help and I was desperate and I was hurting. And so typically it's when crisis happens that someone who has never seen a counselor would begin seeing a counselor and getting help. So that was 23 years ago. And then the other major incident that happened in my life was in 2017. On February 1st, I was on one of those high mood swings and I let myself um, be unconstrained and let my creative energy go. And the way it came out in my behavior was I went on a shopping spree for $1,500, buying gift cards and some things for friends and family. And was just really energetic and thought I could um, 
um, anticipate what was happening with other people. And then by evening time, I was supposed to meet my wife and son for dinner at a at a food hall. So that's one of those things we have in California, Anaheim Packing House, where you have like 10 restaurants in a warehouse. It's kind of the hipster version of food courts. <laughs> and I wanted to take our family into a secret restaurant that people don't know about. And I thought I was playing Jedi mind tricks. And eventually I got myself in, even though we didn't have a reservation, I thought I was invisible. And I guess that kind of worked because my wife and son couldn't find me. <laughs> and, and so they, they went off on their own, but by the evening's end, I was uh, detained and handcuffed and taken to the hospital for three days because I was apparently misbehaving and I don't know exactly what happened that I was misbehaving. I don't think I hit anybody, but they were concerned that I might be harmful to myself or just wanted to be caring for my safety. And so that was a very, very sobering time to really, I never thought I had that big of a problem, but I was definitely at risk for something. And so for the next nine months, I really um, was intentional at learning what good self-care would look like for me. So uh, now I sleep like nine hours a night plus an afternoon nap. I try to enjoy what I eat. Um, I've had to adjust my work schedule, um, stay active with social social life, spiritual life. Um, what else? So, so I'm guessing yeah. that... And, and stay on medication and therapy. So it sounds, I'm guessing that for you to figure out that what good self-care was, it wasn't something that just happened like in a week. Maybe it took you years to figure out that you needed nine hours of sleep and that you needed, you know, definitely needed to be part of a support group or to have therapy and definitely needed mm -hmm. your medication. So yes, it took me about nine months. Okay. It took me about nine months to feel normal again. And the first half of those nine months, it took four months to figure out the right medication because I needed a new mix of medication. And what medication does for me is it helps me to think clearly in order to work on the other parts of my life. So physical, emotional, mental, psychological, and spiritual. So during that time, uh, included uh, active prayer life, small group, a support group. And the way I say is I could use all the help I could get. And so um, being with friends and working at a slower pace, all of that was helpful. A side, side note, when you were saying you in, to enjoy food, did you mean, because I'm thinking, oh, does that mean like you, you eat like food that's tasty to you? Or do you mean like more eat healthy? When you said well, I tried some diets and eat healthy and it just wasn't, it became more frustrating mm, okay. trying to measure food and calories and all that. So it was much easier for me to eat foods that I enjoy, basically enjoy and have smaller portions. Mm. So instead of counting calories and having a strict diet, which would be just stressful and more work. I went with smaller portions and that seemed to manage my overall well-being pretty good. Okay. 
So managing the stress, not not getting stressed about the food you choose. Yeah, getting stressed and staying healthy. I mean, again, healthy is very much a part of overall health. So food helps, relationships help, uh, regulating sleep helps, and just keeping in. And I give my wife and my son permission to speak into my life. If they notice anything unusual that I would listen. Because mm. for someone that struggles with mental health, it's common to uh, get off medication or stop therapy as soon as possible or to res resist hearing feedback from people. And so those three things kind of anchor me to make sure that I stay safe and healthy as much as possible. So can I ask you two questions? And the first is, you said you still go to therapy. Is that a weekly thing? Um, I've been doing pretty healthy. So it's every other week now. Every other week. Okay. Yes. And I pay out of pocket, so insurance doesn't cover it, but I find it so helpful. So I want to backtrack well, when you talk about therapy, I think one of the reasons why it's hard to get therapy or maybe being Asian, it's mm -hmm. hard is because it costs so much money. And part mm -hmm. of being Asian oftentimes is just not wanting to have to pay for things. Mm -hmm. It was it that it was, you were so desperate that you knew you needed this help and you saw that it was so beneficial that you're willing to pay out of pocket for it, would you say? Well, 10 years ago when I was in a, actually it was 10 years ago when I was in a job transition. So typically stress triggers um, extra symptoms that are hard to manage. And so 10 years ago when I was just calling a friend who happened to be a therapist, uh, they responded really well and made time in their schedule to talk with me. And so um, um, when when you need help, you find money to pay for it. It's, it's just high priority to take care of one's health. And then over time, it's a healthy habit. And so um, our, our budget is, can handle it right now. So it's, it's okay to have. And it's important. Well, it helps. Yeah. And so, healthier. so I think, I think um, therapy is more valuable than Hulu or uh, streaming cable. And so we cut corners in other ways. Can I track back to when you first found out that you had bipolar? Mm -hmm. What I was wondering was, when did you start telling people about it? And then as an Asian American male, I'm just wondering like what that was like, especially if you have to mm -hmm. talk to family about it. Mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. Could you just share a little bit about that? Yeah, it was a private and personal struggle and diagnosis for years. I want to say five to seven years before I broached the subject with my parents. And their first reaction was denial that, you know, when they looked at the Chinese translation for bipolar disorder, it, it, um, it was obvious to them that we didn't have it in our family because part of uh, bipolar is often genetic. And so that was their first reaction. But as they saw that 
having that information and how I was taking care of myself mentally and emotionally and physically, then they learned to accept it as something that was helpful to me to manage my life. Now, in the meantime, uh, after I share with them and I have two younger brothers, they would still find ways to give advice and encourage me to get off medication. And they just don't like the idea of being on extra medication or having to see a psychologist because of frugality. <laughs> but um, I, I want to stay healthy and I, I stay with medication and therapy because it's helpful. And I uh, don't want to take the risk of getting off of that and endangering myself. Although I don't think it's super dangerous, but it's, it's you know, it doesn't, I don't have a lot of side effects. So that that's one thing that helps me to stay on the medication. It's not overwhelming to have, have to um, try to manage life this way with medication. Now, um, in terms of going public with it, um, there was a journalist who found my website to be very interesting in 2013. So he interviewed me for over 12 hours and really wanted to feature my story as being a church consultant, as well as my personal journey of living with bipolar. And so he really um, was sensitive and interviewed me to capture my personal story and my professional story and uh, invited me to share that. And at the time after living with and managing my uh, mental health decently well, uh, 10 years into it, I thought I was ready to go public with it. And it was published in the OC register. And so it was the first time that I went public with my diagnosis and along the way people have found it helpful and so I realize it's a part of my faith testimony that helps other people to experience freedom and to find someone who can empathize with their struggles too and then we can walk together and share and carry our burdens together so that we are, are no longer alone in our pains and that's one of the um, uh, most amazing things is realizing we're not alone and shame really isolates us. And so for me, having opened my life since that time, about 10 years ago, um, doors have continued to open. So I'm very grateful. For many of us, our parents or grandparents, they sacrificed a lot to give us the best. For you, if you're listening to this episode Caring for your elder is something that you want to do out of gratitude. I want to make sure that you know about my Prepare to Care digital course, and I've talked about it many times, but really I created that digital course on things that I want all my dear friends to know as they're caring for their parents. What's in there is stuff that you should focus on right now, like while they are still alive and most of us don't realize that the time we have with our loved ones, like our parents or grandparents, it's probably shorter than we think. We always overestimate the amount of time we have. And so we kind of like don't do anything until it's too late. So I really want to encourage you, go to valueofwrinkles.com and you can click on enroll in the menu, but you can check out that course. It's $89 right now. But I really, I really want to encourage you to check it out because it, it will make a difference in the way that you care for your loved one 
especially if you're trying to do it respectfully, effectively, and especially if you find yourself Googling a lot on the internet, save yourself time and just take this course. So we're talking about the how it's very it's important to be more open as opposed to closed mm -hmm. off. And I just hear community is probably a word that we would say is very important to yes. uh, one of the one of the ways to to manage. Um, when you when you first said about when you were going through the restaurant, kind of thinking you were in a Jedi mind tricks or, mm -hmm. you know, invi invisible. Uh, when you think back, it sounded, it sounded like you weren't quite sure, like you couldn't remember everything real well. Do you, would you say that, could you, would you say that that is something that ever happened before? Like, was it a reality where you really couldn't sense the different reality? It seemed true to you or was, is that a typical thing or it just happened for that instance? It was just that instance. Yeah. So, yeah, I haven't had that happen before. And, um, I mean, I, I knew I was in a energetic mood that day, mm -hmm. but I think because of my behavior and others would have to vouch for it, you know, there's something that was a little bit off. And so the parts that I could remember that was a little bit off is I thought I was invisible and people couldn't see me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought I was doing Jedi mind tricks. And there's probably other parts that I can't remember. Right. So then, at, obviously, it's... obviously, um, some things happened that security got involved, and so. So in the moment, for for anyone out there who who may find mm -hmm. similar things, they may feel like they can kind of do more things than they thought because there's that creativity, mm -hmm. there's that energetics where you feel like I can do a lot of things. And then you just may not be able to realize it just on your own thinking, but then that's where the help, I guess, from the outside, the community or people around you to help you with that, to kind of say, Oh, I think you're going now along with that. Is there some crucial components that you felt like during that time that you felt hey, this was really good, but these people somehow they came to you to help, help you to figure out how to manage things as opposed to some people may say, oh, you're fine. Just just do this and this, pray more or read the Bible more. And then that's it. You feel like there were certain crucial things that really helped at that moment to get you along to manage better. Well, or, at that moment, I guess like that moment like after the fact just happened. The community. Yeah, during the nine months of recovery, having community was definitely um, a part of being uh, healthy again. Uh, with a sm small group. So small group at our church is uh, reading the Bible together, having discussions in prayer time. And then support group is a place where you can be with others who either suffer depression or other mental health challenges or um, even general sharing. We, we go to a church called Saddleback and they have Celebrate Recovery and they make time for what it's called open share. So everybody gets three to five minutes just to share about, hey, what's going on in your life? You say as much or as little as you like. Usually you touch on your emotional state and just having a safe place to share and being listened to is helpful because it, it helps you to process your emotion. One thing that Pastor Rick Warren says is the sharing of your feelings is the beginning of healing sharing your feeling is the beginning of healing. And so support groups provide a place for that. 
So those support groups like that they have at Saddleback, let's say somebody lives in California, do they have to be a member of Saddleback? Can they, do they have to be a Christian? Do they have to be a church member? What, how does that work? Is that... Yeah, it's an open invite. So anyone can come. Um, good number of people that are not part of church and not Christians come to celebrate recovery. And Celebrate Recovery is uh, international now, so there's many, many thousands of churches that have Celebrate Recovery groups. So it's kind of a Christian version of Alcoholics Anonymous, but it's no longer not limited just to just people who struggle with alcohol. It's for anyone that struggles with life, uh, hurts, habits, and hangups is the way they describe it. So Celebrate Recovery, and that's something that people can look up anywhere mm -hmm. really they can google it and find resources yeah. for that okay yes and is that a free resource that yes oh that's great, that's great. yeah free faith-based celebrate recovery.com uh, very welcoming and it's faith-based so for people for, that find faith to be a helpful element of recovery that's a great place to connect into and find community um what else can I say? The um, There's a Dr. Thomas Insel who recently wrote a book titled Healing, and he was the director of mental, the Mental Health Institute in Washington, D.C. for over a decade, and he's worked in psychology and psychiatry and that whole healthcare system. And in hindsight and reflection, he realized that therapy and medication alone doesn't help people recover uh, through their mental health challenges. Um, individuals who struggle really need three things, which is people, place, and purpose. And for those of us that are people of faith, that really describes what the church has to offer. Uh, people, a, a place to belong, <laughs> and purpose, that we can turn our pain into purpose and in helping others. And by being together, we share our... Um, life and we share our journey together and so that's what's so powerful that medication and psychology alone uh, doesn't provide a question um i like what you said about those those three things and i can see that's very important and i think when you said saddleback it's very well known amongst the christian community of just all the different mm -hmm. things they do what would you do you have any um advice for people who may not be in this same situation they may be in a certain smaller area maybe a smaller area where the churches aren't um i guess don't have what, as many, many resources. resources and what if they don't feel connected is there things that you could say well i think maybe stick it out you know maybe because some of the hardships of finding someone who could understand i'm sure you met lots of different people that you felt oh they don't really understand and i don't feel connected with this yeah, so I really have a heart uh, to uh, reach people who are isolated, and that's part of my impetus in starting the Erasing Shame podcast. So we've been doing that for four years now, just to open the conversation about uh, how to erase the shame amongst Asian Americans about mental health. And Brene Brown, who's popularized the topic of shame in mainstream America, has described how shame festers in silence. And so starting the podcast was, well, let's just have some honest and healthy conversations about living well. And so we've been keeping that going. And 
my the mental image I have is how can I reach someone who's isolated, feels all alone, doesn't have friends, family doesn't understand them, and they're in their bedroom with a closed door. You know, maybe social media could reach them. And so I cr I created the podcast to reach that one person. So if that one person is in a closed bedroom in a small town, I think technology is a way to reach them. And then now we've all been through the post-COVID experience. So Zoom has become a way that we can experience some level of community with other people. And being in a group that's uh, safe, facilitated by someone with lived experience, that's living a healthy lifestyle, has been a powerful way that people can experience support and recovery. And in fact, I've been part of hosting a Zoom small group online. Uh, that's a support group. We call it Living Grace using a curriculum that comes out of a um, nonprofit based in Waco, Texas. And we've gone through the 16-week workbook four times now. Wow. And it's helped people from around the world. So we've had people come in from Belize and Canada and the Philippines. Wow. And we're able to experience healing together. That's awesome. And I, what I like about your podcast, though, and I, I, I will put it in our show notes, in the show notes, but that makes so much sense. If somebody's isolated, they may not want to come out. But social media is something that, I mean, in some ways it makes us more isolated, but but it, you're using it as a way to reach people who are already isolated and may not feel comfortable talking to others about these issues. So I think that's great. That's, you know, good job. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Stories really open up our hearts and help us to connect with each other. And that's why it's so important, not just to show images that are kind of flat and showy, but just genuine stories of our everyday life, the highs and the lows. But I think people relate to the pains more than the highs because that's when we you know, feel bad about ourselves and need help and can help each other. Yeah, so thank you for what you're doing too. I was thinking about one of the challenges of bipolar or just even depression, where I think it, you know they're both very... Mm -hmm widespread is the, um, the the challenge of it is when you're feeling down and then when you're feeling down low energy you're not necessarily going to go out and search out resources and have the energy to go let me try to figure this thing out to manage this and get this so i was wondering if you had some examples of things that you saw were helpful for yourself just your individual story and what you did to kind of get out of that as opposed to being, well, I'm stuck here and now I'm just stuck. I, I tried, but now I'm back in a down, down, down period, low period. Mm -hmm. now I'm like, Oh, lost it again. Or mm -hmm. even what you do now, because I'm mm -hmm. sure there are times you still feel stuck, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's just like you need to take a walk or I don't, yeah, I guess what, yeah. How do you maintain it things? and keep it going as opposed to relapsing and just getting stuck? Yeah. I mean, I do have my cycles. Actually, I just had a week when I was feeling a bit more low. And so I was not to the point of stuck or spiraling, but I could tell I was, my ideas were slower and I was um, 
kind of my wheels were spinning in the mud. So it wasn't stuck like I was in quicksand, but it was spinning a bit. And so a uh, part of that becomes what that looks and feels like is overthinking and having negative thoughts and being indecisive. So there's this um, vicious cycle of negative thoughts, negative feelings, and, and just spinning. And so the way to break that cycle, I have to tell myself, oh, when I notice that happening is I need to get my body moving. So get outside and walk around the block or walk around the neighborhood begins to break that cycle so that I'm not just stuck trying to think my way out of thinking. <laughs> so overthinking breeds overthinking. And so the way out of that is to get my body moving. Uh, that that helps me start to get unstuck. And then a second thing is, um, and it's hard to do, but taking initiative and call someone or do something for someone else. So get my body moving and do something that touches the person. Those two things uh, help me get out of my inertia. And then I can get on with my day. And then I haven't gotten to the point where I, desperately need help but i suppose if i did get to that point then uh, i might call my wife or my son and say hey, can you take me to the doctor but having a plan really helps to know when that happened you can implement plan c or you know do something because if you're in the moment and don't know what to do then the stuckness or feeling like you can't get out of bed just perpetuates and so being prepared is the best way to get out of that and from what i'm learning uh, moving your body you can't think your way out of negative thoughts so moving your body is a great way to get out uh, for other people it's music um, for other people it's art but i think um, those indicate using your other senses besides just being stuck in your head is, is kind of the way out of that. That's a great point. Just using your other senses and think about that. I mean, I thought of walking and things like that, but, but listening mm -hmm. to music, doing art. Um, I like that. And just to know you more. So what is it that you, you like to do? What do you move? What do you like to do when you're to, to move? Is that, cause that sounds like that's Take one of yours, walk. right? Is it just taking a walk or do you do like, other yeah, things? taking a walk. I'm not a runner. <laughs> so taking a walk is, is kind of my best way out. Um, I, I must, I like to be a more social person, but there isn't, I don't have neighbors that I can just knock on the door and drop in on like I did in the dorms at college. So that is, that's, that makes college fun. <laughs> yeah. It's such a unique season of life, but it's such a bubble too. And the rest of the life we have to adapt and learn to live in different ways. So taking a walk, just, getting fresh air makes a big difference. I was wondering if you had, it's almost like a check and balance. I know you meet with the counselor and that's helpful, I think, because if mm -hmm. they can tell, oh, it seems like you're a little down today. And then they go, did you do some movement? Mm -hmm. Do you have any, I don't know, sometimes it can be interesting things. Like, do you have post-it notes or a phone ring that says, oh, when I feel like my wheels are turning, go, go outside and take a walk. So then you know, oh, Oh yes, I should go do that. Or do you just keep it in your head? That's what I'm I'm wondering. Uh, right now it's in my head, but your suggestion is great. 
and I will do that because that can only be helpful. That can only be helpful. Uh, I'm not very disciplined or planning kind of person. So that's why I kind of, by nature, I resist making goals or set lists and doing things that many normal people do. I mean, it's normal for people to make lists and set goals and things like that, but I'm more free spirited, but I will do that. Thank you for the good tip, Kevin. Well, I want to thank you for your time. And I feel like it takes a lot of humility to be able to share your story and just to not even just your story, but your struggles with not just us, but Mm -hmm. everybody (laughs) to Mm -hmm. allow that to be public. Um, Is there, I know you're working on a lot of things now. So if somebody wants to know like what other initiatives you're working on, can you tell us a little bit about that before we close out? Sure. Well, my latest initiative is called Christian Asian Mental Health, C-A-M-H, and the website is camh.network. And that's become kind of a convergence of my whole life experience with seminary, with faith, with uh, computer engineering, as well as my mental health journey. And so the big idea of this initiative is to advance compassion and care through faith communities that can help everyone. And so we want to be a part of helping Asian and Asian American churches to be safe places for those who struggle with mental health. And we do that very simply by providing concierge service. So churches learn to talk about mental health in their sermons, share mental health stories, have mental health seminars, and mental health support groups. And all of this is very low cost, And there's people, I believe there's people in the churches that can be activated to do this, to care for one another and really show the love of Christ through our hands and feet. There's about 9,000 churches in the U.S., 2 billion people in Asia. And so if God would move mightily and bring people and resources to do that, that would be uh, a wonderful thing for a lot of people and bring me a lot of joy too. So thanks for the opportunity to share about God's story in my life and what I'm stepping into by faith and sharing with you. Yeah. Thank you so much. If today's episode was valuable to you, I would just want to ask, can you share it with a friend? I'm really trying to get the word out there about the need for more support for Asian American families, especially as they're caring for their older loved one. If you have just a minute, would you write a short review on whatever app that you're listening to this podcast? And what that does is that helps get the word out about my work. This And it allows me to do more because more people know about it. So thank you so much for joining me again. I want to thank DJ for the interview. I want to thank Kevin, my husband, for helping me out. And I hope you have a great week.